and I had other cool experiences. Like I got to go to Hong Kong for two weeks for hearing, and I got sent to Lagos in Nigeria on my own to interview witnesses. I was involved in a search and seizure order where we raided this warehouse, and you don't you don't generally get to do that sort of thing in house. Hello everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. This episode is sponsored by the University of Law. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief that its students should learn in a realistic, professional and contemporary context. They focus exclusively on practice-based training and give students access to their extensive career service and jobs vacancy database as soon as they accept a place with them. Through the University of Law's pro bono programme, law students can hone their skills by working on real cases before they graduate. The University of Law offers a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. To find out more about the courses on offer, click the link in the description box of the podcast. Welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast Series. My name is Camilla and I'm a future trainee solicitor and current LPC student at the University of Law. Today on the Student Lawyer Podcast, we're joined by Oliver Graysbrook, in-house counsel in Marsat, which is a British satellite telecommunications company. Oliver is also on the board of directors at the Student Lawyer and is founder of the Student Lawyer Mentorship Scheme. Yeah, without further ado, let's welcome Oliver onto the show. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Oliver. Thank you very much for having me. I'm a, uh, a, a long-time uh, listener and admirer of the podcast, so it's uh, <laughs> a big, a big honour to be invited on. Thank you. Yeah, well, we've been, you know, we've been wanting to get you on for ages because, um, yeah, we'd really like to share some of your in-house experiences and, and yeah, vast experience, really, with the listeners. Um, so yeah, stay tuned to um, hear more from Oliver. But before we get into the episode, we're going to do two truths and a lie. It's much more difficult to say than it sounds. Um, legal edition, which is a new feature where we're going to put three laws to the guest and the guest has to say which one they think is a lie, i.e. not in force in England and Wales. So the first one is it, it's illegal to shake a mat carpet or rug in the streets of London that's the first law it's illegal to jump the queue in the tube ticket hall and then the third one okay it's illegal to ride a bicycle in a swimming pool which one (laughs) So, so, so two of them are actually in force in England and Wales and then the other one is not so you have to decide which one isn't okay well I think the swimming pool one is too weird to make up. So I think that one must be true. Okay. Um, the opposite one. See, I've probably, I'm sure I've shaken a mat at some point. 
But I reckon that's the sort of thing that could be a law. So I'm going to say the lie is the one about skipping the queue in the tube. Skipping the queue in the ticket queue. The, the second one. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Okay, well, I like your rationale there. Um, so yeah, stay tuned to the episode to the end of the episode and we will reveal which one is actually bogus. So yeah, stick around for that. Um, and let's get into the episode. So um, Oliver, please could you start off by give, giving the listeners an insight into your career journey so far? Sure. Um, so I did my training contract uh, at Covington and Burling, which is a US firm in London. Uh, and I qualified there in 2014. And then I worked for four years there in the dispute resolution department. So doing a mixture of commercial litigation and international arbitration. And it was quite a general practice. So um, because the, the firm's relatively small in London, you, you have to be quite a generalist. Whereas if you work as a litigator at, say, a big magic circle firm, you'll become quite a specialist and, say, just do banking litigation or... Um, energy disputes or something whereas I yeah. I had to do a bit of everything so our clients were uh you know we had media clients pharmaceutical clients shipping sports energy financial services uh, a bit of everything which was good kept you on your toes and then in 2018 I moved to the US um for uh, personal rather than professional reasons because my a partner started a PhD in Philadelphia um, and I wasn't US qualified and uh, did not want to have to go back to law school because I knew it was only going to be for a couple of years. Um, so my options were quite limited, but I was uh, very lucky to find uh, a job at two education companies, uh, one called Virtual Internships and its sister company, CRCC Asia. And because they had offices all around the world, uh, including in London, they were willing to take me on as their first in-house counsel uh, as an English lawyer, but working in the States. Uh, and that's actually also how I got involved in the student lawyer because CRCC Asia actually owns the student lawyer. Uh, and then that takes us up to last year when I moved back to London and started working for Inmarsat. Oh, brilliant. And um, that sounds like a yeah, really interesting career history, um, especially the fact that you were involved in so many different industries when you were um, working at Covington and, and then moving to America as well. It's a really great experience. So, so what do you think it was about working in-house that attracted you? So I was actually looking, it was, it was looking at the future of my career, which might sound a bit premature because I was only four years qualified at the time. But um, if you work in litigation, you need to make up your mind quite early whether you're going to stick with it or not. Because once you get to a certain level of qualification, it's quite difficult to move into anything else. Um, so I was, I was thinking a long way ahead uh, and looking at what the partners in my law firm did because that's if you know if you work in a law firm ultimately you need to want to be a partner uh, but it actually didn't look to me like a job that I thought would 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 suit my skill set because as a partner you don't 
uh, necessarily get to do much of the bits of my job that I en enjoyed doing, uh, like the of my previous job that I enjoyed doing, like the legal research or the drafting. Uh, but you have to do quite a lot of things that I wasn't that interested in, like business development or strategy meetings, client management, dealing with billing, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, whereas when I looked at what uh, general counsel's job involved, and um, for any students listening who might be newish to law and don't know that term, a general counsel tends to be the most senior lawyer. Uh, kind of the chief lawyer in a in a company, so an in-house uh, it's an in-house role. That to me looked like a much more interesting job because uh, when we worked with general counsels, they would come in to the office maybe with the the CEO or the top decision makers in the company, and you'd see that even though they're in charge of the legal side of things, um, they'd be working closely with all of the business people in the company, and they were part of that commercial decision making. Uh, process uh, and that closer client interaction and commercial focus uh, appealed to me more as a as a long term goal to aspire to rather than becoming a partner. And then secondly, I was also lucky to get sent on a couple of in house secondments um, while I was in private practice, and that uh, gave me the confidence that I could do the job, even though uh, I was a litigator, which uh, not a corporate commercial lawyer, which is the more traditional route into in-house. That's great. Yeah, that sounds like um, good experience, you know, working in-house um, on secondments and then maybe just sort of trying out. It's kind of like a test run, I suppose. Um, so that you, Yeah, you like uh, it, it, it is really good. It's um, some, <laughs> some law firms are reluctant to do it because... Quite often, when people go on secondment, they don't come back. Oh, but, really? <laughs> um, yeah, but I think um, I was quite lucky in that I had, uh, I had kind of that my firm knew that I was um, leaving anyway because of moving to the US. Right. Um, so they uh, were willing to send me on this. It was it was literally in the last uh, six months, I think, before I left. So they were uh, willing to part with me they let you go <laughs> yeah um okay so i think we've kind of touched on this a little bit what, what do you think about other main differences between working in-house and working in private practice sure so um i think in-house you tend to have to be more of a, a generalist um so unless you're working in a a huge huge company with a big legal team then there might be some specialization most in-house roles will be uh, quite general so a big bulk of it will normally be commercial work uh, so by that i mean uh, drafting and negotiating commercial contracts but in my current role for example i also do disputes i do corporate work uh, to advise on competition law data protection all sorts of other random questions that aren't really legal related, but that just <laughs> <laughs> come my way. And no one's going to be an expert in all of those things. So you're not expected to necessarily know all the answers, but you need to know enough to be uh, of some use um, in answering questions, but also you've got to know enough to know when there's a risk 
and when the more specialist help is needed. Uh, whereas when you're in private practice, you are that specialist help. So yeah. law firms get paid a lot of money because clients expect them to know the answer to everything. You can't be guessing uh, as a law firm. And because you are quite specialist, you do tend to be doing uh, the same sorts of things because that's how you get your expertise. Um, and I would say there are also differences in working practices. Um, I think the hours tend to be longer in um, private practice, although you know in-house isn't necessarily a, a nine-to-five role. But uh, because as an in-house lawyer, you're working as part of the business, um, so you're you're working practice and hours will align to the businesses, and it's uh, kind of in their interest for you to do your job quickly and efficiently whereas obviously that's the case in a law firm as well but because most law firms still work on an hourly rate um it is from a law firm selfish point of view in their interest for you to work longer because that makes the law firm more money right and law firms will say you know we don't have a billable hours culture the fact is that you have to record every minute of your day and they are keeping track of your hours and you know the more hours you work you might get a bonus so it can lead to some I would say less healthy working practices and the last uh, difference I would say is that in-house you tend to get more direct interaction with your clients so your clients obviously being your business colleagues in-house uh, where you'll be kind of talking to them every day. They'll just call you up out of the blue with questions. Whereas an associate at least or a trainee uh, in private practice, you probably won't be getting direct questions from the clients. They tend to go to the partners and then get flowed down to you. Okay. That, yeah. That's not, that. Thank you for going into detail. Um, there's some things there that I that I didn't realise. Um, and I, I think it perhaps was good um, sort of training for you, as it were, for you to have been quite generalist when you were in private practice. Perhaps that kind of helped you when you came in house. Yeah, I, de- I definitely think it did. Um, yeah, I think it did because you're used to. Uh, I guess hopping between things and not necessarily being in your comfort zone the whole time yeah definitely so do you think that a different skill set or personality type is required for in-house work yes uh, I do (laughs) I probably already alluded to in my answers Um, but I think a nice way of um, I I attended a uh, webinar the other day that was hosted by various uh, senior in-house lawyers at tech uh, startups called, uh, and it was on, you know, how to be a good in-house lawyer. And it was called, don't let perfect get in the way of done. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I am the sort of person who gets pleasure from having a really big to-do list in the morning and then, you know, ticking it all off and being super efficient and speedy. Whereas uh, private practice, the cases or deals you're working on will last, you know, months, possibly even years, and everything needs to be perfect. 
So it doesn't necessarily lend itself to people who want to be super efficient and speedy and get stuff out the way, but it lends itself well to people who are perfectionists. So for example, when we were working on these disputes, we might have a written submission that was I know over a hundred pages long and we would spend a month crafting it and making it perfect and checking every single line was on point and there were no holes in it. My some of my colleagues would be, you know, so so proud of what we've produced and that's how they got their buzz at work. Whereas I would be proud of it to an extent, but I think I was, you know, too impatient and after several weeks of late nights I'd be a bit sick of the sight of the thing and want to move on Um, that makes sense and I think you also need to be more comfortable with risk in-house in that you're on the phone every day as I mentioned to people who want instant answers so you don't always have the time or resources to get that perfect answer that you would have if you're at a law firm Um, And so part of the skill of being an in-house lawyer is recognizing that every decision comes with some risk. And so you've got to weigh up the risks and communicate them to the business in a way that allows them to make an informed decision. So that's kind of what clients are talking about when they say they want lawyers with good commercial understanding. They want lawyers who are going to accept that there are legal risks, but help them manage them rather than just saying no you can't do that it's yeah it's it's too risky before we get into the second half of the episode i'd like to take this opportunity to talk about the sponsors of today's show and the law school that i chose to study my lpc at and that's the university of law the university of law believes in training students for the real world from the moment they accept a place Their experienced career service and award-winning pro bono clinics offer students the chance to get real-life experience from the start. They offer a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment-focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. To find out more about the courses on offer, click the link in the description box of the podcast. Yeah, as an associate, in terms of managing risk in private practice, this was another of my frustrations. It's the partners who have to make these decisions, but they're not necessarily the ones who have done the work because their billing rates are too high and they don't have time. Uh, So they will be relying on on the work of associates. to give them answers, uh, which means, again, for someone like me who's quite impatient when a partner's telling you to triple check something, which, of course, they have to do because the decision rests with them, um, it can get quite frustrating. I should say at this point, it sounds <laughs> it sounds like I'm being very down on working in private practice, which is maybe not what uh, the listeners want to hear. Those of you who are looking, who are, you know, budding lawyers and applying for law firms, I should be clear that some of the things you get to do in private practice are really cool. Like speaking from my own experience um, of being a litigator, going to court or an arbitration hearing is really exciting and probably the biggest rush I've ever had from anything I've done professionally. 
And, you know, when I was a student imagining what being a lawyer is like, going to court is, you know, it's not quite like being in uh, suits or whatever. <laughs> is there a more up-to-date reference than that? What, <laughs> what's, no, uh, what are people, what are people watching now? <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not quite as exciting as that it's still it's still pretty exciting and I had other cool experiences like I got to go to Hong Kong for two weeks for hearing and I got sent to Lagos in Nigeria on my own to interview witnesses and I, wow. I was involved in a search and seizure order where we raided this warehouse and you don't you don't generally get to do that sort of thing in-house and I get the 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 point is you don't you get to you don't get to do that stuff every day in private practice either. So the people who will stay in private practice are the people for whom doing those exciting things sometimes is enough to keep them going through the less glamorous side of private practice. Whereas for me, I made the decision to sacrifice maybe not doing that high-end stuff. Um, no more raids for you then? <laughs> probably no more raids. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I can look back, even though it was only four years, I did a, a, lot, of, a lot of things that I can now look back on fondly. <laughs> that definitely sounds like really, yeah, that sounds really exciting. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I completely appreciate that the two roles maybe would suit different personalities personalities like you've kind of alluded to Um, yeah and that's the point I'm trying to make is that just because it didn't necessarily suit me long term I don't want to put your put our listeners off it definitely suits um other types of people and you know they're they have very fulfilled long-term careers in private practice so, you know, bearing in mind those differences, was it difficult to make the transition from private practice to in-house? Um, you know, what challenges did you face and, and how did you overcome them? I would say yes, it is quite different, especially as I as I said, going from being a litigator to in-house isn't isn't necessarily the traditional route because although I do the occasional dispute in-house, it's not my day-to-day job. Um, and I would say it was, uh, especially difficult when I transitioned because as I mentioned, I was, uh, the first lawyer for virtual internships in CRCC. So I was setting up a lot of infrastructure and things on my own. I didn't necessarily have any, um, resources, uh, or support at my disposal. And I was covering, you know, work and jurisdictions that I had never uh, worked in before so in terms of how I (laughs) how I manage that I think it does require a bit of self-belief which you do get from having gone through a training contract well having got a training contract in the first place which um, as I'm sure your listeners know is 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 not easy and then you know having got through several years in private practice if you know you've got those skills to fall back on, I think you can back yourself uh, when you're when you're faced with um, new challenges. And I also think it's important to build a good relationship early on with the um, business people who you're working with, your 
clients, your, even though they're your colleagues, I, I guess you can still think of them as your clients. Um, so it's been it's been less of a an issue in Mossat, which is um, obviously a very well established company. So the the business people are used to working with lawyers. Yeah. Um, but when I was at virtual internships and CRCC, because it, they're a newer company, I would sometimes get, you know, questions saying we want to, I don't know, furlough this person in China. What's, what's the law behind that? <laughs> um, so I think it's important to build good relationships early on so that you can let the business know where you can add value but also what your limitations are uh, so that you can you know set set expectations yeah managing expectations sounds like something that would definitely come in handy um yeah yeah that, that sounds again like a real challenge especially being the only in-house counsel at virtual internships and having to and um, CRCC Asia and having to set everything up from scratch so then you moved from the educational sector which is CRCC Asia and virtual internships um, to telecommunications at Inmarsat is it difficult to transition between industries when you're working in-house or is that something that can be done quite easily it's a good question. It depends on uh, the industry. It's a classic lawyer's answer. It depends. Certain industries that are quite heavily regulated, so uh, things like pharmaceuticals or banking, um, because you're dealing with regulations, they tend to want people with expertise in that so once you've worked in it it uh you might get pigeonholed and they might only recruit people who have got that expertise whereas things like tech or education or consumer goods i would say it's a bit easier because the although the business is a difference the type of legal things you are doing tend to be more similar and obviously you've got to to learn about the the new business so I've had to learn about space and how satellites stay in the sky and all that sort of thing which uh, is a bit out of my comfort zone but it's been actually really interesting if you've worked in private practice you should kind of be used to doing that anyway as I mentioned earlier we were working for clients in all sorts of different industries and when um, when we talk about commercial awareness, that's understanding your your clients' businesses and the markets in which they function. So if you're used to having to do that for clients across multiple different businesses, just learning how one business works, I guess, is uh, maybe easier. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You only have to read one section of the newspaper to keep up to date with yeah exactly <laughs> the, the space section which doesn't is not that long fortunately <laughs> <laughs> anything going on in space today no <laughs> um okay so do you have any advice for listeners who want to pursue a career in-house but don't know where to start so 
My personal view, and I should say this is just me speaking personally, uh, is that it is that you're better off starting off in private practice just because I think you would generally get a more rounded training experience um, and you'll pick up the skills that will stand you in good stead for in-house. I don't think I would have had the confidence to work because uh, as I've said, you do, you are kind of put on the spot a lot um, and are out of your comfort zone. And I don't think I would have had the confidence to do that if I hadn't been, if I hadn't had the training that I'd had. Once you're in private practice, you can, as I mentioned, get to comments to test out whether you think in-house might be for you. If you're not interested in doing that, I can't speak to this myself, but I, I know there's a, a lawyer out there. Uh, she's called Emma Lilly, um, and she did a interview. She did a written interview for the student lawyer a couple of years ago, um, and she has since started a website called In-House Potter. Uh, okay, which I yeah, see yeah, a fair yeah. bit on LinkedIn, and um, understand that has got a lot of very good resources and information for people looking at going straight into in-house, as in training in-house. Um, so, yes, I would recommend looking up Emma and her website <laughs> rather than taking advice from me. Brilliant. Well, thank you for um, signposting the listeners to Emma Lily I've heard of her actually I think I follow her on Instagram um and yeah she seems to have really good advice so definitely echo what you say there um okay so I'd like to ask you a few questions about the mentors mentorship scheme now um would you mind giving the listeners an overview of what the TSL mentorship scheme is all about sure so um the scheme's been running for uh nearly a year now and so we match uh, students from underrepresented backgrounds with solicitor or barrister mentor. Uh, and if you're successful in getting onto the scheme, you'll be matched with your mentor for a year and you'll be also invited to various events that we host. Uh, so things like skills workshops or talks from lawyers and trainees, or we run practice assessment center exercises. Uh, we were hoping to run various in-person networking events as well but um for obvious reasons haven't been able to do that this year but fingers crossed uh, for the future and um yeah as i say we're coming to the end of our first year we have two cycles a year a winter and a summer one uh, and we've had uh, quite a few of our mentees get training contracts and pupillage offers which has been really That's exciting brilliant. uh and yeah no it's been great uh, if you're so obviously there are uh, quite a few mentorship schemes out there. Um, what I would say about ours, uh, by comparison to the different ones, uh, if you're a student, it covers both solicitors and barrister, uh, prospective solicitors and barristers, um, whereas a lot of them might be one or the other. Some other schemes are quite prescriptive about who can apply. So they might, for example, have um, certain set categories that you have to fall into. We um, made the deliberate decision to keep ours pretty open. So we've got some uh, examples on the website, but we don't 
require you to identify or fall into any particular category. And in fact, if you can show that you've just faced um, some challenges or difficulties in your life or um, legal career, to, uh, legal journey to date, um, you can still be considered. And we've had, I don't want to pick out any specific examples, but from the applications we've had, there have been people who wouldn't necessarily qualify for other schemes, but we've definitely thought that they were um, deserving of having a mentor. Um, and a lot of a lot of the other schemes are focused just on commercial solicitors um, because that tends to be where you know, the money is to sponsor these schemes. Well, I would say that most of the applicants for our scheme and the mentors are also broadly commercial solicitors. We do have mentors from all sorts of other areas as well. Like we've got government lawyers and people who work for the Crown Prosecution Service, um, criminal barristers, uh, civil barristers, commercial barristers. Um, and we do try, obviously, we're, it depends who comes in the door as a mentor, but we will try and match you as closely as possible with a mentor who works in the area that you're interested in. Um, we actually have a lot of in-house lawyers who um, who are who are mentors because um, I think a lot of a lot of a lot of lawyers are very interested in in mentoring because it is a easy way that you can make a, a very concrete difference in um, trying to make the the legal industry a, a more diverse place, which I think everyone recognises is is something that needs to happen. Um, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of in-house lawyers don't, uh, a lot of, um, people who work at big law firms, maybe their law firm will have its own scheme, whereas in-house lawyers will, uh, not necessarily have access. So that's why they've, a lot of them have been coming to us, which has been great to see. And we've actually got, um, a team of in-house lawyers have been helping us run the scheme, a team at, uh, the at EDF Energy, who uh, run the nuclear new build projects at Hinkley Point and Sizewell, um, and I think it's uh, it's it's been very rewarding for the mentors as well. You know, it's been obviously very useful for mentees. But when when uh, when our mentees are offered um, have been offered training contracts or pupillages, it's normally actually the mentor who gets in touch with me first to say, "Oh my." My mentee has oh, been offered a spot by, you know, proud parents, which is, uh, yeah. which is really nice to see. Fantastic. Well, I really like that the scheme is open for all the, you know, not just commercial law, because like you said, I don't really, I don't know of any other mentorship schemes. I'm sure they're out there, but um, I don't think they're maybe well known about. So, um, yeah, we definitely want to spread the word about this one. Um, and, and when do you think the next round of pairings will be? You mentioned that there's usually one in the summer. Yeah, so uh, I would check, keep checking the website. There's a, a clear signposting to the mentorship scheme page. Uh, it's probably going to be July, but um, but yeah, I would recommend just just uh, keep checking and it'll we'll, we'll announce on social media and things when um, when it opens. Great. So make sure you're following us on social media. Um, nice little plug. There. Yeah. <laughs> Inadvertent <laughs> plug there. Um, and how can listeners actually apply? What's the application process like? 
So it's a CV and cover letter, um, maximum two pages. And what I would say is that the website has quite specific instructions for the cover letter and um, explains the, the marking system that we use. Uh, so my recommendation, if you want to get onto the scheme, is look at that very closely and yeah, follow the instructions because unfortunately we get a lot of applications that, you know, it seems like a very strong candidate, but they haven't jumped through all the hoops that we've asked them to. So unfortunately we, we, they don't score very highly. Um, and that's just, I guess, good, good advice for, uh, not just for this, but for uh, training contract or pupillage applications as well. Before we close off the interview, I wondered if um, if you had a time machine and could go back and give yourself a piece of advice for when you were at university or applying for training contracts, what would that be? It would be that, that everyone uh, has imposter syndrome and very few people really know what they're doing. <laughs> and I'm not just talking <laughs> about the other candidates who you're up against but I'm also talking about the lawyers I I would go to these assessment days and get taken around by trainees and even though they were only maybe two years older than me I would think they were basically from another planet in terms of how assured and knowledgeable they seem to be but you know I've since been a trainee and I've supervised trainees and I know for a fact that everyone people are winging it the whole time and I've worked with partners who were winging it. Um, and the point I'm making is not that <laughs> not that everyone's clueless, which obviously is not the case. People who work in law firms are you know, very smart. But my point is that you learn as you go along. So in a few years' time, you'll be that trainee. And even though you might not feel that different, you'll, you know, you'll be showing around a student who will look up to you as if you're... Um, all all knowledgeable um so what <laughs> i guess what i'm saying is uh you know just keep going okay yeah. so yeah that's the end of the question so i will do the revealing of the two truths and a lie so oliver you said that you believe that jumping the queue in the tube ticket hall is not a law in england and wales um actually that one is in force and, yeah. and it's illegal um, to shake a mat, carpet or rug in the streets of London, according to the Metropolitan Police Act of 1839. Um, and yeah, the tube... There was the bicycle one. Yeah, it's the bicycle one. But actually, so I can forgive you for thinking that it's a law because it is a law in California, but not in England and Wales. <laughs> <laughs> So well, that goes uh, back yeah. to... Yes, it shows how much I know. That was the one I dismissed instantly as, <laughs> as definitely being true. Yeah. Um, oh, well, good to know. <laughs> yeah, well, we, yeah, exactly. It's, it was apparently to stop... Apparently in the 70s, BMXers were, like, breaking into swimming pools and making a skate rink out of the pools. So that's why they, they put that in law. Ah, uh, okay. That, that sort of makes sense. <laughs> yeah, because when I was researching this, I was picturing people in the swimming pool on a bike thinking, how would you even cycle in the pool with the water in it? But 
Yeah, that makes more sense. Does make more sense. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been really great to get your insight into in-house life um, and the comparisons that you drew between private practice. And I'm sure that will really help um, some of the listeners who might be you know, debating whether they should proceed down the in-house route or the or the um, private practice route. So, yeah, thank you so much for spending your time um, to come and talk to us. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great. Great stuff. Okay. So um, thank you to all the listeners. Um, if you're listening to this on Spotify or iTunes, please do subscribe and also leave us a rating and review. And we'll see you in the next one. Goodbye. This episode is sponsored by the University of Law. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief that its students should learn in a realistic, professional and contemporary context. They focus exclusively on practice-based training and give students access to their extensive career service and jobs vacancy database as soon as they accept a place. Through the University of Law's pro bono program, law students can hone their skills by working on real cases before they graduate. The University of Law offers a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. The University of Law will help you reach your ambitions by delivering an outstanding academic and employment focused experience, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. As soon as you begin your studies with ULaw, you'll learn how to think and act like a lawyer. Whether your aspirations are in law or other fields, their courses will balance academic rigour and practical skills so your career starts from day one. To find out more about the courses they have on offer, just click the link in the description box of the podcast. To hear more of the Student Lawyers podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com.